Well, thank you so much, Ben, for joining me today. Very excited to talk about your incredible journey in your career so far and sort of what you're building now at Harmless Harvest and sort of the mission and vision of what you're doing with, with that brand. You know, a really interesting sector that has a lot of different innovations coming through it, um, a lot of foundational stuff that sort of still needs to be attended to properly. So before we get into to all that, uh, talk a little bit about your, your journey and your career path before Harmless Harvest. Well, Grant, thanks for having me. I'd say, you know, it, 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 it's, we all have, I guess, our own unique stories. And, and mine started in rural Wisconsin. I'm actually a first generation college student. Didn't even know at a young age that I wanted to go to college. I mm-hmm. it, just was not exposed to those types of things. I had, you know, chores to do. Lived out in the country on an old farm. Each Saturday, we would take our garbage to the dump and I would <laughs> look for treasures. Uh, you know, I got my first bike out of the dump. Uh, we fixed it up, and you know, it was kind of, you know, spray painted it, did all that type of stuff. So, you know, it it, it definitely was, you know, a a good. I would say a tougher, but a good upbringing. Mm-hmm. I, you know, and, and I think what I took from that is I I, I do now have this kind of eternal optimism and I have this incredible work ethic. Like I'm, you know, like I can roll up my sleeves and uh, I'm comfortable in any environment, whether I'm composting, which I've had that job before, <laughs> um, or, you know, in a board meeting, I'm, I'm very comfortable at, at, at all different levels and all different types of situations. And I think that that really has uh, served me well. But I think, you know, as we look back in life, there's always like these interesting inflection points. And I got my first real paying job I mean, besides mowing lawn and babysitting at a private golf and country club in Fond du Lac, Wisconsin, which is a town of about 35,000. I lived outside of Fond du Lac, but, you know, I got a job there as a busboy. And that's when I really got exposed to, wow, all these people who, you know, belong to this country club, you know, they're doctors, lawyers, business people and whatnot. And so that's when I realized, hey, you know, I don't want to work at a factory or whatever. I'm going to, I'm going to go to college. Mm -hmm. And um, I think in the beginning, I, I kind of thought I wanted to be a lawyer. Maybe because I like to talk and I thought, and I, I think in my head is like, you know, litigation and just in the courtroom. But I think, I think anybody who's in law recognizes that's probably the minority of what they do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I applied and went to the University of Wisconsin-Madison and that was an amazing experience for me. So, you know, fast forward, um, you know, my career, I started out, I went into consulting, management consulting on the East Coast, super quant-based analytical uh, consulting firm. I actually took a leave of absence, actually, my, my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, uh, we quit our jobs to go do volunteer work in Central America, and they didn't let us quit. Huh. Um, yeah, they they convinced us to come back, but they paid for us to go down and and take a sabbatical. Um, and so we went to Costa Rica to begin with. We spent three and a half months in Central America, um, worked on an organic coffee farm and lived with a family. Um, we spent time when we first got there, we lived separately with different families. So we'd learn Spanish faster. I speak German fluently, but, you know, Spanish you know, <laughs> was was very new to me. So I said all sorts of very fun. You know, when you're learning a language, you, you say all sorts of stupid, funny. Oh, things. yeah. Oh, yeah. More than my fair share of those. And then, you know, went up to Guatemala, did more volunteer work. Uh, that was my compost. You know, I was in charge of composting on this organic farm. Uh, did that, build some homes, you know, just, you know, spend some time, you know, just trying to give back. It was one of our, you know, we wanted to do more in communities and we wanted to learn some Spanish. Went back, worked for another six months and then, you know, quit again and, and moved to the West Coast. Um, I did consult, I did brand strategy consulting. So I did more kind of macro level, helping companies launch, working with, the C-level 
executives. And there was another inflection point for me. So, you know, I, I kind of assumed that C-level executives and CEOs in particular, like these were these uber crazy smart, um, kind of an echelon that, you know, a simple guy like me could never aspire to. And, mm -hmm. and what I learned in that job was, yeah, I have a lot to learn and I have work to do and I'm not ready yet at that time. But I have it in me like that, that I, I can do this. And so that was when I, I realized that, you know, someday if I, if I worked hard and, um, you know, did a good job, that I too could be a, a CEO. And so that was an important inflection point. I went back to and got my MBA at, at Kellogg in, in Chicago. Uh, my wife, uh, well, a fiance at this point, um, <laughs> she, she works, um, she did AmeriCorps Vista, which is basically Peace Corps in America. Well, yeah. we're, Chicago. Uh, she worked to, on microenterprise development for financially disadvantaged women. And then we moved to the East Coast. She went to Wharton and I worked at uh, Johnson & Johnson. I worked at a global launch. And then she interned at General Mills, wanted to go to General Mills. She had an offer to go to General Mills. Um, they really wanted her, so they offered me a job as well. So I was part of that package deal. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and that was my first real foray into food and beverage. Yeah. And I have, you know, one of my mom's kind of side jobs, you know, when I was younger was she had a catering business. She's a, she's a quite a good cook. My grandma's a very good cook. I would consider myself uh, very comfortable in the kitchen. I've, I'll let others judge whether I'm a good cook or not, but I'm very comfortable in the kitchen. Um, and I love food and beverage. Like I would consider myself somewhat of a foodie. Um, and so that I worked at General Mills. We both worked at General Mills for about eight years, had just a great experience. And that was where I really learned how to run a business. Mm -hmm. So in the marketing role, uh, you're really a general manager and you you run the business cross-functionally. And, you know, there were business, I worked on, you know, shelf stable, I worked on refrigerated, I worked on frozen, I worked on innovation, established businesses, I worked on more customer assignments, uh, you know, I worked on kid products all the way to boomer type products. So kind of got the whole range of experience and just, I mean, I, I can't, you know, be thankful enough for my time at General Mills. I learned a lot. And, and, Every business I worked on there, I, you know, I definitely developed a little bit of a reputation of just, you know, like I believed that at the end of the day, a basic covenant that, you know, as food manufacturers you have with consumers is that you're doing right by them from a health and wellness standpoint. And so every business I worked on, I really worked to eliminate things that I felt were um, not in consumers' best interest, Well, you know, whether it be high levels of sodium, uh, eliminating artificial flavors, artificial colors, removing MSG, uh, you know, th all of those types of things silently in most cases. Mm -hmm. um, and just, you know, because, you know, a lot of the business I worked on, you know, their household names, you know, you're reaching. 30% of U.S. households it's in crazy. a year. Um, the scale so, is crazy. Yeah. So if you can improve it incrementally, make it better and better, that's like one way of improving. And then certainly what we can do to eliminate waste and stuff like that, which is good for environment, but also good financially. And then fast forward, you know, at, at that point, we then moved to California. My wife actually, again, led the move. Uh, she wanted to work for Cliff Bar. She had a, an offer from Cliff Bar. So we moved out here and well, I, I followed her. I, we had two kids by this point and I said that I would, you know, take care of, you know, wrapping up uh, school year with the kids, selling the house and do all that type of stuff while she, you 
know, started her new job and then we moved out here. Um, I took a job with Plum Organics and um, that was where then I could bring my full self to work. And now you're working on something that reaches very few households and how do you right. expand it and get to more households, right? So you take an inherently nutritious, um, organic B Corp, you know, though, you know, a really responsible business. And how do you scale that? How do you make sure that you're having positive impacts in your communities? Um, I would say if community was like a big, uh, a big focus for ours, but then also environment. Um, and then how do you do it also in a, in a business friendly way? How do you grow sure. top line? How do you, how do you, you know, get yourself to profitability and, and all the while doing right in communities and environments. So I really enjoyed that time. I, I, I was there pre-acquisition and stayed through uh, post-acquisition. I was there for about five years. Who, who acquired them? Uh, Campbell Soup Company. Okay. And then, I, and then I came to Harmless Harvest. And, and I have to say, you know, many people ask me like, so why did you go to Harmless Harvest? Like what, you know, what was it about it? And, and, and there, are few, there were three things that really struck me about Harmless Harvest. One is fundamentally, it was a responsible business. I believe that business can be a force for good. I, I do believe that you can grow top line, you can um, make a business profitable, all the while serving in a very positive and constructive way, communities and environment. Mm-hmm. So um, that that first and foremost is is a foundational element for me, and 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 certainly Harmless Harvest uh, lives up to that. The second was it's a product that I loved, right? I already knew the product, I already drank Harmless Harvest, um, and it is you know you know anybody who works in you know frankly any kind of business, but certainly you know is CPG. Uh, you know, you really want a meaningful point of difference. If you've got a really good product with a meaningful point of difference and you've got some, you know, IP or some some sort of insulation, that's really powerful. And, you know, we we buy a very unique coconut that is only located in one part of the world. And it's, we believe it to be the best coconut in the world. And we do a proprietary process where we don't have to thermally cook our coconut water. We do this proprietary filtration process. So you, you get this very fresh tasting, really, you know, as close to the coconut as you possibly can come experience uh, from it. And so uh, that was really powerful. And then finally, you know, it was a business that had struggled um, mm-hmm. and was not in the best position. But as I assessed the business, I felt the things that I bring to the table, you know, because we all have strengths and opportunity areas, but the things that I brought to the table and the type of talent that I felt that I could build around me, I felt that, you know, I and the team would be up to the task to really, you know, unlocking the potential. Speaking about both from the General Mills, you know, time and then your time with Plum, it seems like you're, it's almost trying to build, create a hybrid of, of those two sort of identities where General Mills had this sort of you know, global reach. And I mean, like you said, 30% of American households, like this massive, massive scale, but also maybe not sort of as clean as, as Plum sort of products were, right? And it's, yeah. it's sort of this... Like you said, we think it's 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 sort of possible, right, to kind of have this CPG that's really high quality for us and, and sort of our body and what we intake into it, and also as as maybe a thriving business. But there's so many things that go into this, right? Even you know, on the ground, people actually you know cutting the coconuts down, right, or, or picking them up as they fall down from the tree, right? It's like how how do we deal with the social responsibility there from the ground level up to you know on the shelf and then after afterlife, right? When somebody drinks. You know, coconut water, they're going to throw the bottle away, right? There's there's so many dynamics that, and that's just one product, <laughs> right? Yeah. Let, let alone, you know, the, you know, 10, 15, 30 product lines under a brand. I, yeah. I guess so when you, 
when you look at, at karma, harm is high risk, and, and people ask you sort of what it is, right? CPG is such a it's such a uh, competitive market. How do you explain it, you know, to to a person that you know it was like, hey, it's just coconut water, right? It's like, how do you separate yourself in the market? Like, how do you? What would you pitch as sort of the mission and sort of vision? Because it is much more than that, right? Uh, great question. So, a couple little things I'll point on. The first, uh, we would encourage people to recycle, not to throw away that bottle. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and and I think I would just you know also just you know in all forms of CPG, I, I think sometimes um, and you know listen, I'm an optimist and I I, I tend to see the bright side of everything. Um, I recognize there are, you know, challenges and whatnot. But even in big companies, um, we have to recognize, you know, some products and just how you process and what you do in the beginning, it is so expensive and it just mm-hmm. is not achievable for so many households. And so I think everybody has a responsibility. So, you know, I think sometimes we demonize, you know, uh, we as a society demonize big CPG, but, you know, they serve so, they can have the biggest impact. And yeah. even, uh, you know, uh, minor incremental shifts have monumental impacts. And so I would certainly encourage everybody in a, in, in big and small, we can all have a positive impact and just, you know, subtle changes in formulations and in how they source and stuff like that has, has a massive mm-hmm. impact, as well as then small companies who are taking it the right way from the start, but then like expanding that, you know, whatever. So I think both yep. parties play a role. As far as harmless harvest, you're right. It, it starts in the beginning. And I think, you know, we've certainly done our assessment starting in the farms all the way through end of life cycle. So we, you know, we, we, you know, we have committed to a 50% reduction in greenhouse gas by 2025, which when I made that announcement, um, I did not have the approval of my team. And, um, you know, part of it is putting a stake in the ground and challenging us as an organization to get there. And, 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 we do an annual mission report and we are very transparent on how we're tracking on everything that we are, are doing. And so, you know, there were other commitments I made, you know, moving to 100% recycled uh, plastic for all our beverages, which we've already achieved, as well as, you know, can, uh, transitioning to regenerative organic, which will be 50% mm. regenerative by the end of this year. So, you know, we're, we're making good in a lot of them. The greenhouse gas, I think we're going to get there. I think we could, I mean, there's a chance we're short and there's a chance we far exceed. Um, and, and what I mean by that is, we work, I have 28 agronomists who work directly <laughs> with farmers on on farming practices and regenerative mm. organic. So we're first and foremost, you know, years ago, just on organic, but we've sure. been now for the last four and a half years working on regenerative organic. Yeah. And, um, and so we work, you know, some companies, I mean, most companies, frankly, they, their procurement, how they're sourcing all their stuff is all through big companies or whatever it may be. It's, they're very detached from the actual agriculture. And that's one thing that's very different about harmless harvest is we have, uh, we have a good relationship with farmers and we have big farm, you know, big landowners as well as really small landowners. And we work with all of them on the principles of regenerative organic. We have, we actually have a separate team that is just enforcing, like does audits and enforcing compliance. So there's a separate team that reports to a separate person in, in our Thai operations. And they're all about going through and, and doing surprise audits and every farm is audited, right? You know, we just, every year, Unfortunately, we disqualify a few uh, a few farms. Thankfully, it's less and less with each year. Mm-hmm. Um, so, if our left side, you know, the side that's working on teaching and whatnot, is doing a really good job, and we're providing really inexpensive, high quality compost because we're making compost from our from our husks, we're doing a good job. So, it starts really in the farms, and it's a very hands on approach, which is I, I think very different from 
most, not all. There are definitely other uh, brands out there that are that that do this type of work as well, but very different than than most uh, brands that you see out there. And when we did our audit, uh, our greenhouse, you know, just to understand what our carbon out, uh, output is, there was one surprise. There was there were actually two surprising findings in there for me. One was two. Okay, two thirds of our emissions come from two things, hmm. and one of them shocked me. One is in the farms, the foliage from the trees falling and then be, hmm. uh, falling into the canals and then decomposing in the canals and, and, and uh, emitting methane. Now, that makes sense, but I hadn't, it just had sure. not really crossed our minds that a natural part, you know, a part of nature was actually contributing uh, to greenhouse gas. And so there are ways to take that, that foliage and incorporate it into our composting activities on the farms. And so, you know, there are great ways for us to address that. But it was that was one that was, you know, maybe some people would have foreseen it. But I, you know, yes, I have a fair, you know, I've, I, I'm familiar with farms in, in a number of different settings, not in a tropical setting, uh, so to speak. But for in me- a, In a was, Wisconsin setting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Wisconsin, you know, that very tropical- uh, <laughs> the, o- the tropical oasis of, of Wisconsin. Exactly, exactly. That was pretty surprising to me. That, that's about a third of our total emissions. Wow. And then another third was, and this one I anticipated, is not using the full coconut, like the husk, mm-hmm. and, right. you know, and and taking you know husks to the landfill. And when I took over the company four and a half years ago, one of the things, you know, I assessed the company, laid out, there are five priorities, but they're really just two that are most important. If we do those two really well, we'll be very successful as a business. One was you know, radically streamlining our supply chain. And with that, getting to zero waste, meaning we have to use that that entire coconut. We buy the most expensive coconut in the world. So A, financially for a business that's not that's losing a lot of money, we need to find a way to use that entire coconut. So scoop the meat and make products with that. And then B, how do we use this husk, right? Because we're paying to transport and paying to paying for disposal in the landfill for these for these coconut husks and 40 million coconut husks at that time. Now fast forward today, like you know, over a hundred million. And then from an innovation standpoint is all right, right now we're 99.5% of our sales are just plain coconut water in three, mm-hmm. four sizes. We need to find a way to use this entire coconut and build sodas as this business. So, you know, fast forward to today, we've got, we scoop the freshly, the, the, the coconut meat and we use that freshly scooped coconut meat. We puree it, add a little water, tapioca, starch, cultures, and voila, there's yogurt. There's our spoonable yogurt. We mix huh. it with coconut water and a few other things and culture it. And there's our drinkable probiotic yogurt. Uh, you know, so, you know, we do a smoothie. We do a coconut with water with pulp. We do all sorts of items now starting to really use that entire coconut as well as the husk. Okay, so the husk. Is <laughs> yeah, right? I've, I've talked to some people about this and doing some really, really cool things. Yeah. And doing this. There are really cool things. I will have to admit, like, we're really good at making very good tasting food and beverage. We're not the best at figuring out how to use, how to make furniture and mattresses and biofuel and all sorts the, of stuff like that. The but easiest learning- one is, is pallet. I don't know if you yeah. know cocoa pallet, but like they're just using the husk to make pallets so you can ship your coconut water on coconut pallets and then so what's interesting is, um, as I've gotten deeper into this, there there are a lot of nuances to all the different types of coconuts. So we harvest a young mm. 
coconut right. that has high water activity. So it doesn't lend itself to some things very well. Gotcha. Um, but it has a good amount of lingons, which, you know, I didn't even know what lingons were, um, which is, you know, kind of like g- good binding properties if you need to make furniture and things like that. Gotcha. The issue is like you got to find, you know, it's, it's still a very big item. You got to chop it up. You got to find ways. And then you have to transport it someplace. And somebody's got to have infrastructure and, and equipment to actually use that that um, output. So it is, in theory, easy or straight, seems straightforward. In practice, not as easy. But the good news is we feel over the next two years, we'll be at about 95% usage of all of the husks. And we, we use it for in a number of ways. So one, composting is an obvious one for us. Uh, so we chop it up. That with then the foliage from the farms, mm. plus then, you know, it's, it's amazing. It's really hard to find organic chicken manure that just is not a much of a huh. thing. At one point, we thought we were going to have to start a chicken farm <laughs> just for the crap. I mean, who who starts a chicken farm just for the, the crap? Anyway. Long, I, I, I won't go down that rabbit hole, but uh, we, we've we've figured out a way. But we're you know making compost. We do some biofuel, which you know I I mm-hmm. think is good. It's better than nothing, uh, but it's not my favorite use. So it just replaces petroleum based uh, you know uh, inputs uh, in in you know to power a lot of the factories in the area. So you know it's it's good, mm, but it's yeah. not perfect. We're working on, so we are doing some, what we call fiber, so where you extract all the fiber out of it and, and that can be used in mattresses and things like that. So we've got a partner we're working with on that. Um, and then um, the one that we're, work, that we're really trying to solve and we really want to do is biochar. So mm-hmm. biochar is, you know, you, you basically burn it in a no oxygen kind of environment. It's a slow burn. And what it does is we can fuel then the factory right. and um be self-generating and what's left is like you know 60 70 75 percent carbon that then gets then used in on the farms and sequestered in the soil which is really good for good bacteria growth right uh, water absorption it's like really good for the i mean farm. this is the regenerative process right this yeah, is how it's you, all, you figure all it fits into the regenerative so that's one we're working on i am particularly focused on that i do think uh that would be a great one if anybody has you know great <laughs> leads in thailand just outside of bangkok i'm just ben at harmlessharvest.com so feel free to reach out you know that one and, and, and there are a number of different usages you know there's you know, we make some uh surfboards there's all sorts of stuff that it's used for but you know when you're processing 100 million coconuts you need a lot of ways to use uh, use that coconut material but we're getting there we're not all the way there but that's why it gives us something to wake up for every day you know we've got we still have a lot of work to do you mentioned that you work with a ton of farms you know large and small and you know some you 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 know you you might have to to let go so to speak uh because i i guess i want to touch on that real quick for a second is that just because their their practices are not up to par like they haven't want to sort of change their approach at all and I think a lot of I spoke with uh, somebody else in, in the fashion industry, you know, about sort of manufacturing. And it's like, hey, all these certificates and regenerative stuff. It's like, well, who splits the bill, right? For them to 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 go to totally restructure and innovate, clean their their manufacturing process, because that's a lot for a small business to take on, right? It's like, oh, yeah, I have to totally recreate how we make stuff for the last like fifty years because you know the market says we need to be climate friendly, more sustainable, which is fine, but that costs money and, and they might not be able to afford that. Is that, do you see that with farms? Like do, do farmers, is it, is it a burden for them to kind of 
figure out a ba- way to be completely regenerative, like on their own, right? Or, or do you yeah. kind of help them through the process of making this transition? Are there other like NGOs that help? Like I'm trying to yeah. fig- just trying to figure out from their point of view how they're dealing with sort of this transition. That's it's a great question. Actually, there are a bunch of little questions in there, so I'll try to yeah, address. Sorry. All I know of them. I do that. No, no, no. It's actually it's actually great. So if I miss one of them, then re-ask. Sure. It. So one of the things, as far as like how we identify, the team has all sorts of little tells. There are little signs that they may have used a some sort of uh, fertilizer that's not allowed or whatever, and and you know you they can tell just on the farm and through sampling and stuff like that. They can there there are a number of ways for them to tell. So there is that process. We do work with them then. So I would say just overall, uh, I'll state one thing at the very top. So from a regenerative standpoint, our transition to regenerative part of our goals, a stated goal is to is to raise farmers' incomes by at least 10%. So that mm-hmm. is part of our objectives. Yeah. And we're training not only what's interesting, and you know, sometimes this I, I will admit, sometimes just like the competitive side of me like kind of gets me <laughs> a little bit, but we are training all farmers, even farmers who are not supplying to us and supplying to competitors. And it's the right thing to do, but it definitely, you know, when you're footing the bill and, you know, and all the resources, you know, from a competitive standpoint, there's always a part sure, of it. Sure, sure. Well, can we just do ours first? And then <laughs> um, That's fair. That's fair. But, you know, you know, the thing is, at the end of the day, we as a brand, I think every brand has basic covenants with our consumers. And we as a brand, our covenant with our consumer is, you know, obviously to deliver a great product, but to do it in the utmost responsible way. And, you know, and that means doing right by communities, doing right by the environment, regardless if it's purely in our self-interest or in others, at the end of the day, we're all, you know, uh, inhabitants of earth. And so we do that. To your question, in the short term, yes, it is a little harder for farmers. And honestly, you know, a lot of the farmers, and when you think about it, this is just true the world over, you think, and I know it just from growing up, like your first priority in a family is pay, is to like put food on the table, have a roof over your heads, you know, clean water, hopefully education for the kids and those types of things. And so mm-hmm. it is really basic. And so- this yep, whole notion totally. of climate change and right. long term and whatever, but you know what? They're living day to day. Exactly, it's just not like, on their radar. It's you know? just not just... on their radar. So that is part of the reality, and that is part of the you know like we um, are spending millions to facilitate this transition. So we have incentives in place as well. Provide early on providing like I mean the compost is like super cheap. So it costs us money to do, you know be making and delivering compost. We're building up this capability um, all along the farms. And you know we are so it is it is an investment and we start with pilot farms. You get the that experience and they have had a very good experience and they're seeing already after a couple of years positive impacts, right? And then we use them to help train more farmers and then we get them going. And as they see good exp- uh, good experiences, then they train in others. And so we have incentives in place. We work really hard with them. We provide lots of, like we're providing the ground cover for free, we're, you know, the nit- nitrogen fixing uh, ground cover. We're doing those types of things as much as we possibly can to really help. We're also, you know, like, honestly, there, there are, you know, from a government standpoint in Thailand, there are crops, you know, whether it be rice or different types that, you know, they have a you know strong focus on and they're 
Because we've been growing and we've, we did have a session with them a year ago with the agricultural minister, and he was really proud and really impressed with just how much we were doing in the communities and how much, you know, we're really bringing the NAM home, you know, their coconut that they're so proud of uh, to the U.S. and other parts of the world. And, you know, that part of that is also we want, you know, we want farmers, those farmers, you know, not just rice and all the others, we want, you know, uh, farmers of NAM home to really start having a voice, making sure that, you know, as they're thinking about their agricultural practices, that, you know, they have the right, you know, um, regulations, the right support, the right types of incentives in place to support them. Um, it's certainly in their best interest. It's in our best interest. So it's trying to work at work at it from all angles, both on the ground with farmers, um, you know, actively helping them, teaching them, financially incentivizing, financially subsidizing some of these transitions, um, as well as then, you know, are there things from a government, from a, you know, uh, you know, whatever standpoint that, you know, certainly serves not only other types of farm uh, farmers, but, you know, the, the non-home farmers. Two more questions here. One would be, you know, we had talked before we came on a little bit about, you know, plastic and kind of where we are in the world, you know, it's emotional relationship with, with plastic, you know, specifically, I think with single use, right? We, we kind of all, you know, do it in some way. It's really hard to get away from it. And there's, there's all kind of materials. There's a lot of innovation, you know, around trying to figure out a way to whether it's replace plastic at, at, at large scale or figure out some type of a just much more sustainable way to do plastic at scale, specifically just at, at single use. The ironic yeah. thing is that plastic is like one of the most sustainable materials ever made. The problem is when it's when it's a when it starts to be used as a commodity, is it the problem is it is so sustainable that it doesn't really break down. Right. Yeah. And so that's the problem. When and I respected that you kind of wrote about this and and you looked at it from from a lens of like, hey, this is where we are. We're trying to figure it out. There's a long way to go, but we're we're taking steps. So I just just from your you know research on, on, in this area and, and the things that you guys have, have tried to implement or are implementing, what's your sort of overview on where we are with? you know, single use plastics and how we're getting better, better at it. So I would say, you know, that there are two things. I, I think sometimes we overly simplified into just one thing and we see whether something's recycled or, yeah. or thrown away as like the mm -hmm. kind of, you know, how good or bad it is from a climate change and all that type of stuff. And, and yeah. it really is, is not that simple. I, I would break it. If I were to simplify it, I'd break it into two things. There's one is what drives climate impact? So when you think about the energy and the resources to fabricate whatever kind of, whether it be aluminum, a glass, you know, cardboard, tetra pack, you know, uh, mm -hmm. plastic, whatever it may be, what it costs to, you know, distribute in logistics, right? So you're using resources there, like all everything, as well as then to recycle and whatnot. There's that component, which has, you know, uh, a, a, a carbon impact. And then the second thing is, it's really an, a waste issue, right? So what is the end of life cycle for that item? Right. Um, can it be recycled or not? And and those are those are two very distinct but important things. When it comes to from a climate impact, from a carbon standpoint, I, you know, I've read all sorts of studies. I've talked to all sorts of experts. Plastic is the best. Um, much too, like, honestly, like I went into it thinking I would do not want to do a petroleum based plastic. I don't, you know, like it is like, let's do something different. And you know, like I can't ignore the science on this, and I really, and I, you know, 
you know, at first, you know, when I didn't hear, when I didn't hear what I wanted to hear, yeah. you, know, you, you go find other sources or whatever. And, and you know, the, the people who, you know, really know what they're talking about and want to find uh, good changes, you know, begrudgingly all admit that plastic is, is yeah. uh, you know, is still the best. Now, there are plant-based plastics. And so from a fabrication standpoint, I mean, you could make some arguments. There's A, what are crops used to grow? And then, you know, there, so there, there's, there, there is some discussion there. But all in all, like bioplastic is actually pretty good in that regard. And so that really then became, oh, I really want to do, we should do, you know, a plant-based plastic. The issue then, now let's start talking about end of life, right? So if you think, you know, back in the day, you know, aluminum and glass and stuff like that, Right. were not really uh, recycled, um, and then there were incentives put in place, and 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 then you you drove up recycling uh, rates. Right? Plastic has not had that yet, and plastic is not recycled uh, nearly at the same rates as aluminum and glass and things like that. You know, part of our thinking is if we are paying more for recycled plastic, we are starting to create economic incentive for now municipalities to have the infrastructure to recycle because they can make more money on this recycled plastic. So, you know, it's, it costs us millions more per year uh, to use recycled plastic than regular virgin plastic. And so we did transition to 100% recycled plastic. And, and that certainly then starts to create this cycle where you eliminate because our issue with plastic is uh. it's not recycled at the same rates. And then it's used for so many different things. So bottles like a, a PET bottle that those things are pretty easily recycled. It's a matter of creating economic value for those yeah. to be recycled. Yeah. Or flexible film type things. So pouches, bags and stuff like that. Those are harder. In fact, you know, they're not readily uh, recyclable. Those are, you know, certainly, uh, you know, bigger issues um, and certainly finding a way to make sure that you can re recycle those. I want to like touch on one thing uh, just on this um, uh, plant-based, you know, biodegradable sure. plastic. That, you know, for a while there was, you know, I was like, okay, we got to figure out how to, we're going to do that. As I talk to experts, especially, you know, you know, as you start looking at the municipalities and how they recycle, the issue with those is... Consumers, you can't really tell the difference between a bioplastic mm -hmm. right. versus a regular PET. And one is, and one can be, they have to be recycled separately or, or one can yeah, be so and the, one can't be. So okay. the, the um, plant base cannot be recycled. And what happens is gotcha. it ends up in the recycling stream and it's not easily discernible. In fact, right. most right. I, I get it wrong. You know what I mean? If I look sure. at it, I can't tell the difference. Nobody, you can't really tell the difference. So the problem is it goes into that recycling stream and it pollutes the recycling stream and then you can't recycle any of that right. plastic. Wow. And so it, it creates it actually a bigger problem. And so... <laughs> It really was deflating to me. I have to be very honest. Yeah, like, for sure. Seriously, like I can't do a compostable bottle made out of plant material because it's, it's going to really muck things up. And it's, and oh, by the way, less than 1% of municipalities can actually compost that anyway. Mm. So it just, unfortunately, we live in a very imperfect world. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, you can't let that paralyze you. And you got to take, put one foot in front of the other and start doing better. And so what, what we decided immediately was, you know what? We're gonna to get to you know we're gonna to get to 100% RPET. So we're not gonna use any more virgin plastic. We are gonna pay extra to get this recycled pellets so we can blow new bottles and then you know constantly recycle plastic. So you create economic value. There's you you address then the one major issue with plastic, which is waste. 
right? Making sure that we're pulling plastic, that diverting it away from the waterways, the landfills, or wherever it might be, creating economic value for municipalities to start recycling. So we feel it's a responsible path, but we are not done. Like we continue to explore all sorts of ways to find new packaging. And, you know, my team would, you know, uh, they don't like when I share these ideas and examples and stuff like that (laughs) because they're so not commercially viable yet. Right. But that does not stop me from wanting to and pursuing and trying to figure out a way. So a good example, the husk potentially can be used to make corrugate. So what I'd love to do is we already use recycled inputs for the corrugate. What if, you know, those husks, in addition to doing biochar and whatnot, we started, you know, packaging our our, our bottles and stuff in a cardboard that's made out of the coconut husk um, right. and, you know, in, in transport. So, you know, there are ideas like that. We're looking at, you know, that you can form bottles out of, out of you know, more kind of plant materials that are really readily uh, decompostable. That could potentially be used. We're, we're looking at that. It's still a little ways away. Um, <laughs> our issue, which most people don't know or may not realize, is we, we harvest pretty – we buy year-round uh, our, our coconuts. But most of the supply is in the fall. Most others in the market actually do stop buying because it becomes incredibly expensive to buy from farmers starting. Actually, right now, we're paying a lot for coconuts right now. And we're buying still a lot because we have a, our, our forecast warrants it. But others will not buy. And they will only buy when coconuts are cheap. So one of the benefits we provide to farmers that they love is we buy year-round. So even when it's really expensive, we're there to buy um, their really expensive coconuts. Because at the end of the day, they, you know, like the trees don't stop providing coconuts. And, and they need a market. They have to make a living right. year-round. And so we buy year-round, but we buy, but coconuts become very plentiful and much cheaper in the fall. So we do bottle the vast majority of our supply in the fall. What that means with our proprietary process, we can freeze our product and it basically locks in the shelf life, locks in the huh. quality. And so we have to be able to freeze and thaw. And so technically speaking, when you start thinking about a vessel that needs to be able to freeze and thaw, you, first of all, you can't even you can't entertain that in glass and aluminum you have issues as well so no matter what we're thinking of as far as a vessel to put our coconut water in you know we do have to think about the practicalities of those things as well um, there are technical both in a processing standpoint as well as then when you think about how you distribute and store and things like that uh, that you have to think of so you everybody's learning a little bit more about how you how we do coconut water here yeah i want to touch on you said incentives, and that, I think that is a great word. Whether it's local municipalities, how do we incentivize to invest, or even local bu- small businesses, right, or innovators, entrepreneurs? How do you invest in you know these facilities where you know people just won't do it or say because oh that stuff doesn't get recycled? You know mm-hmm. they they read an article and it's mm-hmm. you know that's it that <laughs> they'll never look into it again, so they'll never recycle. So part of it is that I think the incentives need to be somehow from the consumer side. Like how do we incentivize? at scale consumers to take time out of their day, change the way they do things and simply, you know, recycle, right? Is there monetarily is the biggest thing, right? Maybe if you if you figure out a way where, mm-hmm. you know, like growing up, it was five cents for yeah. aluminum can, right? Yeah. It and and you know, obviously inflation and there's things that, that doesn't do much. But if it's, you know, if we could bump it up to like 10 cents or there's a way to yeah. get it to tax tax deduction. Some way, if you if you can, you know, there's there's sort of a recycling. There has to be a way to me, from a consumer point of view, from an economic point of view, to get you know 300 million people to really seriously think about like 
going out of there to recycle, and then that will create the that end of life economy where facilities will come, municipalities invest, because then they'll have you know everybody doing this. Then it gives them a reason to really invest. So I think the incentive is a great word, and I think it just needs incentivize on on all the different sides of the supply chain. Yeah, I would add, I'd add to that. So I think there are two things to have. And the second thing is kind of a two-prong. So the first thing is, I do think as a country, we need to standardize how we recite, like how we sort our garbage. Um, that is, I mean, you can move from like a mile away to a different town. Yeah, right, totally. And they recycle differently. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, you may even have recycling and then you see them dumping the recycled stuff into the garbage or something like, I mean, there's like stuff happens, right? So we need to, as a country, uh, we need to, from the top down, standardize how we recycle because then that starts eliminating confusion because it's it is very confusing and i know lots of smart people and i am a pretty smart person and there are times i'm like oh no that you can be recyclable and like here it's not there it is it's just different everywhere so standardized recycling number one number two is i agree with you incentives right so go back to like what works you know with aluminum cans or whatever it's like all right five cents ten cents whatever the number is start paying for all plastic bottles and anything that can be recycled to begin with and i would also um as a government i would provide incentives if municipalities invest in these you know the, the ability to to recycle that they will that you you provide incentives uh you know like tax breaks whatever it may be to make that investment yep. because they have to look at the economics as well so they have to look at like okay it's going to cost me 25 million dollars to invest i can you know then sell these you know this recycled uh, plastic pellets for x yep. amount and they you know they have their, at the end of the day they have to look at the financials as well so that's where government can help and jumpstart and facilitate something happening standardize incentivize both for uh, you know municipalities to start recycling as well as then consumers to start recycling these bottles. I feel like this is these are very reasonable things. Yeah. <laughs> and that can be I mean we we subsidize it's just smartly subsidizing certain areas. We, yeah. we did it with EVs, we're doing it with EVs. Solar. I mean there's so, so many it, exactly. There's- so like there's there's these smart ways to to use subsidies as a powerful force to to grow these certain economies, create jobs, like standardizing to me is like such a, such a great point and, and such a, I think, not, look, nothing's easy, right? But it's, it simplifies it for everybody involved. And when you have criteria, everybody can follow it. It just simplifies things more. So I think yeah. that's, that's a great point. Last question I'll end here was a little bit on the future. And, and I know we talked a lot about some of the future things and some of the things that, that you guys are working on, but I guess just from a goal standpoint and, and, you know, what does success look like for you in three or five years? What would you like to see, you know, sort of happen? Success for Harmless. And I I, I believe we're on the path. It's not an easy path, I will have to admit. <laughs> and, and, and frankly, everybody who's out there who's, you know, working in these types of, or any kind of business, right? You know, I think sometimes it can feel a little paralyzing because the, the mountain is high that, you know, we're climbing. But, um, you know, I, I feel confident in, in our path. And I think one is the the rest acts is we have to have a successful business, meaning mm-hmm. growing sales and generating some profits for us to really invest in the things that drive impact in communities and environments. So one does not exist with the other, right? So it can't be pure mission because if you don't make money, then 
you know, at the end of the day, you just, the investors, it just all dries up, right? So you, you got to deliver the business, but I do believe you can deliver the business in a very responsible way. And I also believe we can't be successful unless we are responsible. Um, a, it's in our name, but B, I just feel like business can have the most immediate and biggest impact, uh, far more than most nonprofits and and, and government. Uh, so, you know, we, we are on the forefront and I think we can do a lot um, because consumers will vote with their paycheck um, and make decisions uh, increasingly in a responsible way. And the, and the younger generations are doing it far more than, you know, we all say uh, that it's important. And then there's always a gap between those who do and versus say, and that gap has closed considerably, especially for the younger generations. So if I could fast forward, uh, you know, three to five years for me, you know, we have a range of products that are really using that entire coconut. I want all, you know, our goal, we believe will be at 75% of our coconut scooped by the end of the year. And it's a very manual process. Um, but being able to use that entire coconut husk included, um, and that we think we can get to climate positive. Uh, we've got a lot of work to do. It requires bio, excuse me, biochar. It requires using all that husk. It requires us recycling, you know, the, the foliage. Interestingly, you know, the, the actual shipping, uh, of our, the, all of the bottles and stuff like that over to the U S is a tiny, tiny, tiny part of the overall uh, impact. Um, it's actually probably number, I don't know, 16 on the list, which I think Usually, I think that was a little surprising to me. I thought it would be higher, but I hadn't thought through how efficient these container ships really are compared to like a semi-truck driving across the US uh, as as an example. But I think being uh, so climate positive, using the entire coconut and really farms being really biodiverse and and regenerative, farmers making more money, happy, uh, you know, that is... That is where I, I, I want to take this business. Um, and, you know, we honestly, like we're working hard to, you know, we're a pretty expensive product and we've worked tirelessly to make this business profitable without taking price advances. Um, hmm. And so that is my goal. Like I want to continue to democratize and, and, and you know, keep offsetting inflation with just getting a fit more and more efficient, but also doing right by environment and communities. And so more and more people can, can enjoy our products. So going back to that earlier state, you know, you know, what I said about like, you know, working at a general mills where you're, you know, if you're working on progressive soup, you're reaching yeah. you know, 25% of households, you know, how do you make that better and better each year? That's, that's great. That's a positive for consumers um, and, and for the world if they're making steps because they have such a profound impact even with incremental changes. Whereas if I can take household penetration from one to three to five to 10 to 15 and we're, you know, climate positive, that is positive, right? You know what I mean? That is, you know, we're driving positive impact and making real change and delivering simple, nutritious, great products that consumers love. And, and, the, and the more we can do to keep it economically viable for people, then I think that's a win-win. Amazing, Ben. Thank you for taking the time. I know you're busy. I always appreciate you know people taking time out their schedule to come on and and talk about and then be honest with it with a bunch of things that they're working on and and what their their vision for for what they're building is. So really appreciate you taking the time and best of luck for the next decade for you and your team. Thanks so much, Grant. 